Welcome, this is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 331 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11, Salyut 1, life on board the first space station. You may recall that the Salyut space station was a series of cylinders with small, medium, and larger diameters. It had a total length of 13.6 meters and a maximum diameter of 4.15 meters. There were four sections. At the front was the transfer compartment. This was the smallest habitable section. It was 3 meters in length and just over 2 meters in diameter. It contained the life support and thermoregulation systems. It also contained the number 5 control panel for the Orion Ultraviolet Telescope. The next compartment was called the work compartment. It was the largest component of the station and was in two sections. The smaller section, known as the first work compartment, was connected to the transfer compartment via a conical section 1.2 meters long. The first work compartment was cylindrical, 2.9 meters in diameter, and 3.8 meters long. It contained the central control panel which incorporated a computer, the first on a Soviet manned spacecraft. Facing the panel were seats for two cosmonauts, the commander on the left and the flight engineer to his right. It was one of seven workstations for controlling the Salyut systems and experiments. The number one station was to control the life support and thermoregulation systems, and to control the automatic orientation and navigation of the station, but it also included a periscope for manual orientation. From there, the commander could control and fly the station using displays and control handles similar to those of the Soyuz. The central panel consisted of the main control panel and command and signal devices. It provided information on the station's position over the Earth's surface, the number of the current orbit, the times at which the station would enter and exit the Earth's shadow, and the periods during which it would be able to establish communication with the ground. The life support system controlled the gas mixture. It eliminated strong smells and filtered out dust. The air was cycled through a regenerator which contained an active chemical substance that removed carbon dioxide. Another unit topped up the oxygen. Water vapor was removed by a condensation trap. Special filters absorbed unwanted chemicals released by the materials on the station, the experiments, and the crew. The number two station was for manual orientation and navigation. It included the control handles for the orientation of the station, a periscope, and a means of stabilizing the cosmonaut at his work position. Next was the number six station, which included the flight engineer's seat. And to the right, on the side of the compartment, was the number seven control panel to operate the scientific apparatus installed externally to analyze the environment around the station. Aft of the central panel of the number one station was the table for preparing and eating meals. The water tanks were located nearby the table and at the aft end of the working compartment. Each man was allowed two liters of water per day, 
but actually they did not use more than 1.2 liters. Usually the cosmonauts spent their spare time in this first working compartment, where they had a tape recorder with a selection of pre-recorded music cassettes, and a small library, and a sketch pad. The central part of the larger working compartment was occupied by the main scientific equipment, which took the form of a large white conical unit that rose from the floor almost to the ceiling. It included the orbital solar telescope, the X-ray telescope, the infrared telescope and spectrometer, the optical viewer, the photoemulsion chamber, photographic apparatus, and various other apparatus. On the walls around it were three portholes. The number three station to control the scientific apparatus was adjacent to the main scientific equipment and included a viewing port. Unfortunately, the protective cover had failed to release when Salyut achieved orbit, and therefore these scientific instruments were unusable. The second control panel of this compartment was the number four station, which was mounted on the adapter between the two sections of the working compartment. It was to control the main medical research equipment and comprise scientific experiments, a viewing port, and a chair. In the upper corner, to one side of the main scientific equipment, sleeping bags were slung from hooks, but if they preferred, the cosmonauts could sleep in the Soyuz orbital module or in the transfer compartment. On the opposite side and in front of the main scientific equipment, there were exercise devices, including a treadmill, an exercise bike, and chest expanders. At the aft end of the compartment, behind the main scientific equipment and separated from the rest of the working area, was the sanitary and hygienic unit. It had its own ventilators and its surface was a washable material. An airflow drew urine into a collector where it was separated into its fluid and gaseous components. Solid waste was stored in hermetic tanks. For cleaning their faces, hands, and bodies following experiments, maintenance work, or physical exercise, the cosmonauts used wet and dry tissues and special towels made of bacteriological materials. From time to time, the cosmonauts were supposed to clean the station using a vacuum cleaner. Detachable panels on the walls and the floor covered support apparatus, electrical cabling, equipment for operating the station, monitoring the composition of air, thermoregulation, radio links, and main command lines. The cosmonauts could open every panel and check the apparatus mounted on the compartment's structural frames. Handrails on the walls and floor allowed easy movement in weightlessness. The walls held lockers of food, equipment, documentation, packed clothes, books, hygiene supplies, and miscellaneous spare parts for repairs. Also aft of the compartment were the refrigerators containing food. To assist the cosmonauts to orient themselves, the work compartment was painted in different colors. 
The front and rear were light gray. One wall was green and the other was light yellow, and the floor was dark gray. The final compartment of Salyut 1 was an unpressurized section behind the main compartment. This was the only section which was inaccessible to the crew, and it housed the propulsion system that was based on the Soyuz, but had larger tanks. To communicate with the ground, there were two-way voice and telegraph links, and the radio system also fed telemetric data to the ground. The antennas were on the exterior of the main compartment. The cosmonauts wore helmets incorporating headsets. Salyut 1 had four TV cameras, two inside and two outside. One of the inside cameras was static and viewed the area of the central control panel of the working compartment. The other could be set up to record activities anywhere in the station. Now with the station tour out of the way, let's turn to the crew experience during the early days. The first few days on Salyut 1 were reserved for reconfiguring the station systems, checking the equipment, starting the scientific investigations, and allowing the crew to adapt to their new environment. Salyut 1 was considerably more complex than any previous Soviet manned spacecraft with more than 1,300 individual instruments and in excess of 1,200 kilograms of scientific apparatus. The Soviet press, television, and radio reported enthusiastically this latest success of the manned space program. The official Communist Party line was that the Soviet Union had never participated in a race to beat the Americans to the moon. Instead, it was concentrating on space stations to conduct scientific research and benefit the national economy, at which it clearly led the way. The cosmonauts' third day began at 1 a.m. on June 8th when the station entered the Soviet communications zone. After breakfast, the cosmonauts checked the life support systems and made a start on preparations for the scientific program. At 11 a.m., the cosmonauts initiated a maneuver to raise the orbit to 239 by 265 kilometers. But there was a problem. The cosmonauts forgot to disable the docking program, and the reorientation failed. But that was quickly taken care of. With Salyut 1's systems confirmed to be in good order, the Soyuz was powered down, since its interior would be ventilated by the station's life support system. In general, daily life on board Salyut 1 involved six major activities. 1. The flight program. 2. Morning hygiene and the toilet. 3. Physical exercises. 4. Meals. 5. Rest time, and 6. An 8-hour sleep. The flight program included the control and maintenance of the station and its systems, the scientific equipment and investigations, radio communications and TV broadcast, photographic sessions, and other tasks for flight operations. The third major daily activity, exercise, was of crucial importance in weightlessness, 
In addition to two hours per day exercising on the treadmill exercise bike and with a chest expander, each man was to spend 30 minutes light walking on the treadmill prior to retiring. Many lessons had been learned from the 18-day flight of Soyuz 9 in 1970, and the physical training equipment aboard Salyut 1 was much more substantial than the equipment on that mission. For the fourth major daily activity, each cosmonaut consumed four meals, consisting of breakfast, second breakfast, the main meal, lunch, and dinner. They could choose on a daily basis between three types of ration for each of the four meals. For example, ration number one had the following products. For first breakfast, sausages, Borodin bread, chocolate, coffee with milk. The second breakfast was Russian cheese, Rishki bread, and cookies. For lunch, the main meal, each cosmonaut had one item, whether it was soup or coffee, that could be warmed on a small heater beside the table. The meal also included green sichi, chicken meat, bread, plum jam with nuts, and black currant juice. Dinner consisted of Caspian roach, which is a fish, a puree, bread, and a honey cake. The fifth daily activity, individual rest time, allowed each man two to two and a half hours per day in which he could spend resting, reading a book, observing the earth, taking photographs, or preparing for a forthcoming experiment. During the sixth daily activity, the eight-hour sleep period, the cosmonauts were to observe a phased sleep pattern in order that there would always be at least one man on duty and at least one resting. Every seventh day of the flight was considered a weekend for the entire crew. On the fourth day after their morning toilet and breakfast, for the first time the crew exchanged their flight suits for the ones named Athlete, but the cosmonauts called them Penguin Suits. These suits were designed to impart loads on certain muscles to simulate the forces experienced in everyday life on Earth in the hope that this would minimize the deterioration of muscles and bones during a long period of weightlessness. A system of supports and elastic straps were attached to the wearer by rigid soles and shoulder straps. The plan called for each man to wear his suit only 40 to 60 minutes three to six times per day while working. They initially had some difficulty in moving their arms and legs while compressed by the elastic, but soon found the suits to be so comfortable that they asked to wear them all day, and later became so used to them that they slept in them as well. In fact, the cosmonauts used part of a communication session to demonstrate the suits and to thank the designers. On this fourth day, the cosmonauts began to use the treadmill, but it was observed that vibrations during use were transmitted through the station's structure, causing the solar panels and antennas to flap. 
For this reason, they were asked to use the treadmill only for short periods. The cosmonauts also started the scientific work by measuring the radiation level inside the station and the flux of micrometeoroids in space around the station. In addition, they tested the wide-angle periscope provided to enable Salyut to precisely align relative to the sun and the planets. Dabrowski and Patsayev fired the Salyut's engine again to raise the orbit to 259 by 282 kilometers. The purpose of this was to reduce the atmospheric drag. Although the atmosphere at orbital altitude is rarefied, it can still impart a significant drag force that progressively reduced a station's orbit, finally causing it to burn up. The drag was greatest at the lowest point of the orbit. Reducing the rate at which the orbit decayed would extend the interval before another maneuver was required. Although the initial engine firings were costly in terms of propellant consumption, in the long term, this strategy did make sense. Thursday, June 10th, Day 5 One of the primary tasks for this crew was to determine the degree to which the human body was influenced by long-term exposure to weightlessness. The crew was to have a detailed medical checkup every five days. This involved taking blood samples and electrocardiograms and checking the composition of their bone tissue, in particular of their shins. On day five, Patsayev took blood samples of all three men for the first time. After Soyuz 11's return to Earth, doctors used these samples to determine how the levels of sugar, urine, and cholesterol varied in each man's blood during the mission. The sugar level was normal in the blood samples taken during the first and third weeks, but increased in the fourth week just before the cosmonauts left the station. There was an increase in the level of urine in the blood of all three men due to the manner in which their kidneys adapted to weightlessness, but there was no detectable change in the level of cholesterol. Each day, every crew member would place a medical belt around his chest. Before doing so, he would smear cream on his skin in order to minimize irritations. The belts had electrodes for vital body functions. During communication sessions with the station, the doctors at flight control would receive electrocardiograms, seismocardiograms, and pneumograms in order to monitor the cardiovascular systems of the cosmonauts. In addition, there was the polynom apparatus to monitor their physiological activity. The results of the biomedical test provided important information on the general health of the three men during their exposure to weightlessness. Dabrowski and Patsayev both had increased heart rates, increased arterial pressure, and an increase in the blood's exchange rate. In contrast, the cardiovascular system of Volkov, the veteran, was more stable. On this fifth day, the cosmonauts began daily participation in TV shows. Wearing their penguin suits, they talked about themselves, reported their activities, and showed some details of their home in space. During one Cosmovision telecast, Volkov said of Salyut's dimension, quote, It's so big, 
that it takes some time to swim from one end to the other. End quote. Pat Saif wrote in his notebook, quote, We had the first television broadcast. They asked the commander about our work on board the station and all of us about our first impressions of being in space. It is nice to study geography, astronomy, and physics in space with my colleagues. Virtually entire continents, seas, and islands are visible. For example, it is easy to recognize Australia, Crimea, and the Mediterranean. In 90 minutes, you get a trip around the world. End quote. Friday, June 11th, day 6th, was dedicated to space astrophysics. The crew began multispectral observations, both of the optical characteristics of the atmosphere and of Soviet territory, in order to provide scientists with unique data about certain locations, including lakes. In addition, the ANA-3 gamma-ray telescope was used to make the first such astronomical studies from a manned spacecraft. Volkov aligned the station to point the telescope at its target and then activated the automatic stabilization system. Then Dabrowski activated the apparatus to measure the energy spectrum of the gamma rays. But the main astrophysical experiment on Salyut was the Orion Telescope, which was in the transfer compartment. This instrument was designed to make spectrograms of stars. The spectrograms were recorded in the form of photographs on 16mm tape. An airlock and mechanical arm allowed a cosmonaut to replace the film cassettes. To use the instrument, one man, usually Dabrowski, controlled the orientation of the station, while Pat Saif, who was responsible for this research, aimed the telescope. Pat Saif had to operate the system quickly because there was only a 30 to 35 minute period on each orbit during which observations could be made, this being while in the Earth's shadow. Dabrowski, sitting at the central control panel, oriented the station as specified by Pat Saif in the transfer compartment with the Orion. When the target star was visible to the telescope, the station was stabilized and Pat Saif started the observation. During the mission, he obtained six spectrograms of the star Agena in the southern sky and nine of Vega in the north. The cosmonauts also used the FEK-7 photo emulsion camera for detecting the charged particles of primary cosmic rays. Another project was to determine the intensity of charged particles in the altitude range from 200 to 300 kilometers, where the station flew, because this radiation appeared to have been increasing since 1960. During the flight, the crew performed more than 60 operations related to measurement of charged particles. The final experiment of the day was to investigate optical materials that had been exposed to the space environment. Before the crew retired, Yev Batoria congratulated them on their successful work so far. Zarya radioed, Yantars, the control group wishes to thank you for your work during the last days. Have a nice rest and start the next work day in a good mood. Volkov, thank you. It is nice to hear that. If tomorrow we feel like we did today, then everything will be well. 
But Volkov wrote in his diary for June 11th, quote, A very full program day. It shouldn't be planned in that way if you consider adaptation to the conditions aboard the station. End quote. Clearly, the excitement of the early days was starting to diminish. Back on the ground, Yelizhev took over as flight director in charge of operations. He was supported by veteran cosmonauts Nikolaev, Gorbatko, and Baikovsky. On day 7, Saturday, June 12, the crew began to make suggestions on how station life could be improved. Pat Saev began by complaining that the medical sensors were uncomfortable to wear all the time and requested that they only wear them during times when the ground could receive telemetry from them. Flight control agreed to this. Dobrovsky complained that the exercise periods should be done with at least two cosmonauts together in order to encourage each other. The ground also agreed to this. Furthermore, Dobrovsky also complained about the work. He wanted all new operations to be planned for all three cosmonauts working together. He complained that it required all three to work with the polynom sensors and deal with the problems they encountered. Flight control said they understood, but this would be a deviation from the work schedule they had planned where three cosmonauts were to work shifts displaced by eight hours while one man slept. In fact, these complaints mark the onset of psychological tensions and irritability arising from the unnatural circadian rhythm, but also due to flaws in mission planning and poor use of the very brief periods of communication with the ground. The crew believed that the need to exercise and perform medical tests meant that the time available for experiments was limited. In addition, a lot of time was devoted to reading instructions, preparing equipment, placing experimental samples into their containers and chambers, recording the results, and so on. Consequently, only four to a maximum of five and a half hours per day were available for experiments. While the station carried much more scientific equipment than any previous manned spacecraft, the flight plan was organized inefficiently, and the time was poorly allocated to the different experiments. But for flight control, this was a real challenge. The program was planned in such a way that all important crew activities would be carried out while the station was in range of the tracking stations. This enabled the ground to check the status of the onboard systems and, if necessary, provide support to the crew. However, due to the timing of the orbit, it was impossible to retain the normal terrestrial day duration of 24 hours. As a result, each day was shortened for the crew by 25 minutes. The sleep cycle of the men in particular, the time from the start of one morning to the start of the next morning, negatively affected their circadian rhythm. Flight control believed that they would adjust. However, the physicians saw a serious risk. And as the mission progressed, the psychological stresses on the crew worsened. 
Dabrowski wrote in his diary, quote, Some days were a nightmare. There was a general absence of everything. No interesting things. No happiness. The monotonous sound of the ventilators. Strong smells. Numerous experiments. It seemed to me that flight control simply wished to test our endurance. End quote. A problem also developed with the chain of command. The crew shared a general responsibility for the success of the flight and jointly undertook the program. But, by his enthusiasm, Volkov, the only veteran on the crew, threatened the authority of Dabrowski, the commander who was accustomed to the discipline of a military chain of command. Initially, minor issues grew into more serious ones. The ground sensed that the situation on board was abnormal and attempted delicately to improve it. This was, after all, the first long flight of a three-man crew and the first aboard such a large and complex spacecraft. Previous space missions had not been able to study the psychology of a group of people isolated in a craft in a dangerous environment with a biorhythm significantly different to that on Earth and pursuing a schedule of exercises and experiments. The two cosmonauts for the Soyuz 9 mission who spent 18 days in a cramped Soyuz had trained together for more than a year. However, the Soyuz 11 crew had been formed less than four months ago. They had not expected to fly so soon and had a rookie commander and an ambitious flight engineer with little respect for military authority. While chief designer Mission and cosmonaut trainer Kamanin fought for the prestige of their cosmonaut crews, it was now evident that neither man thought seriously about the psychological issues facing mixed crews on long-duration spaceflights. In particular, when considering whether to replace Kubasov with Volkov in order to allow Leonov's crew to fly the first space station mission, no thought was given to the potential downside of sending Dabrowski's recently formed crew on such a long flight. Nevertheless, even with these problems, work continued. There were daily TV broadcasts and science and medical experiments were conducted. Most of the seventh day was devoted to biological experiments, both agricultural and genetic. The effect of weightlessness on plant growth. Genetic tests studied mutations in fruit flies, tadpoles, yeast cells, and the seeds of cabbage and onions. Gamma rays were used to stimulate genetic mutations. The eighth day was devoted to astrophysics. On the ninth day, Volkov and Patsayev carried out experiments to improve the station's autonomous navigation system and conducted meteorological experiments. And the tenth day was dedicated to the study of atmospheric phenomena and the Earth's surface. Reading from Patsayev's diary for June 15, 1971, quote, The ocean's color is delicate blue. The waves are visible, usually through the porthole on the opposite side to the sun. The wakes of the ships can be seen, as can condensation trails, 
of high-flying aircraft, end quote. And so ended the first 10 days aboard Salyut 1. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 331 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Soyuz 11, Salute 1, Life on Board the First Space Station. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode will be released on February 13th, the seventh anniversary of the podcast. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 160 are available on the archive. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all pod catchers. First of all, I would like to recognize SpaceX for their very successful capsule abort test. Another huge step on launching astronauts from U.S. soil. I think they're shooting for the early part of the second quarter for the first crewed mission. Good luck, SpaceX. Last week, I asked you for suggestions on naming a very high level of supporters who donate above the Orion level. I want to thank you for writing in with suggestions, and as a result, I have decided to create five new levels above Orion. And believe it or not, we already have donors at some of them. The new levels are shown on the new donors page on the website, spacerockethistory.com, but I will list them here for you right now. First, we have the Voyager level. That's at $150 per year, and that is intended as a tribute to the Voyager probes. Next, we have the Starship level at $200 per year. And that is a nod to SpaceX's very ambitious Starship rocket. Then, at $300 per year, we have the Artemis level to honor the U.S. program to return humans to the moon. Next, at $400, we have the Mars level to honor the past probes to that planet and the future of landing humans there. And finally, at the highest level, level, which is $500 per year, we have the NASA level. And that, obviously, is for going where no one has gone before. And there you have it, the five new supporter levels of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I really appreciate everyone's input on that, and thank you very much for writing in. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode I was impressed at the science these early Soviet pioneers were accomplishing on the first space station. They were under great stress and pressure, leaving earlier than expected and not having the training of the prime crew 
I thought they were doing a great job in producing some great Soviet television broadcast. From what I have read, this mission was highly followed in the Soviet Union. But, as can be expected, there were problems with this first mission. First, the schedule was too aggressive. No one had experience on what could be expected for a long-duration mission with three cosmonauts. So, in my opinion, the Soviets tried to cram too many experiments into too short of a time. And I believe they did not allow the cosmonauts to properly acclimate to space and, of course, weightlessness. Next, the command structure was questionable. I'm not sure about this, but I believe it was a military decision that made the rookie, Dabrowski, the commander of the mission, instead of the more experienced Volkov. Now, this situation with the rank will get worse on the next episode. And finally, reducing the day by 25 minutes every day really threw off the cosmonauts' circadian rhythms. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal at first, but over a week's time the cosmonauts would lose three hours of their day. It was like moving to a new time zone every other day. At first, it's not so bad, but over time, it just keeps getting worse. But all of this is nothing compared to what is coming up in the next episode. Okay, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider supporting it. We are entirely listener-supported, and we have no commercials. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Since the last episode, we had several new contributions and increases. I would like to thank Guido T. from Australia, who sent in an extra donation this year and moved to the Orion level with the alien emoji. Stephen G. from Minnesota donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Andrew R. from Michigan donated at the shuttle level and earned a shooting star emoji. Anthony G. donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. James P. from Texas donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Stephen H. from Dublin, Ireland donated at the Soyuz level. Robert M. from San Antonio, Texas, donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. Denise K. from Canada donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Craig H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned a shooting star emoji. John E. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Vostok level. Ian B. from North Carolina pledged on Patreon at the newly created Artemis level. Darth R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the newly created Starship level. Martin G. from the UK also increased his pledge on Patreon to the Starship level. Patrick N. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. And Ronald B. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. 
Our total Patreon donors thus far have reached 245. That is about what we had at the beginning of the year. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 279 with a goal of reaching 500 before the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. It's so much fun to be a part of the podcast and to announce the winning donor. For this episode, the winner has a choice of a Space Rocket History magnet or two coasters or two stickers. So, with the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Darth Rust. Darth Rust, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH logo preference, coaster, magnet, or stickers, we will mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 279 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. Okay, folks, my sources for this episode were the same as the previous episode, so I won't bother repeating it. And that is all we have for episode 331. I try to have episode 332 posted by Thursday, February 13th. So long for now.